This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So my brief was to have a look at what glimpses of perfect vision I may have had early on and kind of what glimpses I might have kept on having which have kept me coming here, which has sort of kept me involved. And I just thought that uh, if I was going to do it, you were going to do it as well. (laughs) And also it's lovely to sort of take in everyone that way. Um, Glimpses of perfect vision, it's a a bit of a difficult thing to talk to. So uh, I kind of thought about it. Well, these are kind of shadows of glimpses of perfect vision. Or I suppose the things which have inspired me um, in my practice and have kept me coming back here. Um, I was up there because I came here as, or not to this centre, but I came to a Bristol Buddhist centre in Long Ashton uh, back in February. No, earlier than that, I think. The end of 1982, beginning of 1983, when I was a medical student. Um, And in those years... I was I was a bit of a hippie. Um, so before I actually went on the wards, I kind of had hair out here, I had pierced ear, and I just wore wild things. And I guess I'm just going to be recorded. Actually, I better be careful what I say. Anyway, I did the sort of things which hippies did. <laughs> um, and I was uh, I was involved in I was a I was a Zionist. Would you believe it? I was brought up Jewish. Um, I wasn't a kind of a Zionist in the sense of kind of sort of grabbing land off the Palestinians, but much more in those days, there was this kind of sort of agrarian socialism and the kibbutz movement. Um, and it was very much, um, well, I sort of was brought up in this community where young people were interested in going out there and settling on the land and working on the land. And it was very, it was very sort of agrarian socialist. Um, and there was a word, actually, which we used to use called chevra, and it kind of meant the spirit of community and sharing. Um, I was very involved in it up until I went to Bristol Medical School. And the year before, I'd been to Israel, and I'd spent a year on a, or a big chunk of time on a kibbutz. And it didn't really fit my ideals, as it often is. Um, I was out there and wanting to find this chevra, or what I would now call sangha, uh, the sense of community and sharing, and also a spirituality which I think wasn't, pre- which might have been, but wasn't present. So I was in Bristol University. I was into dope, it's recorded now, girls, um, and I sort of had this kind of sense of disappointment that I hadn't sort of found that that thing that I was looking for, and. I, um, I did yoga in the university union on a regular basis and was very keen on it, and that was good fun. And I saw a sign in the university union which said, learn to meditate, and in small print it had kind of Bristol Buddhist Centre or something along those lines. And um, there's an older man called Tejananda who was leading classes at that stage um, in the university union and then the Catholic chaplaincy. Um, and I went along there. And I learnt, I learnt the mindfulness of breathing and the metta Um 
Uh, I kind of thought it rather odd. Um, I liked the meditation a lot. I didn't really like the, the ritual, and I certainly wasn't interested in religion. Um, but nevertheless, something drew me. Um, and it was also a sense of um, unsatisfactoriness with the life which I'd had up until that point. Not pain as such, but just unsatisfactoriness. And I remember either reading or listening to a talk from uh, Ergen Sangharachita Panti um, in um, Long Ashton, and it was about the three lakshanas. It was about uh, impermanence, insubstantiality, um, and unsatisfactoriness. And it was kind of sort of, it turned me. I just thought, um, it's very hard to express, but I don't know if you've ever had this feeling of that when you hear something, or you have a notion of something, that you somehow know it to be always true, but you weren't able to put it into words yourself. So I just heard these three words, um, impermanence, insubstantiality, and unsatisfactoriness. I thought, that's it. Whatever it is, that's describing what my existential experience was. Um, and it kind of kept, kept me going. Um, so I carried on with the yoga. And I think I went on a retreat um, in Padmaloka. Um, I also um, went to India as a medical student to Pune, which is where Karanar has a lot has activities all over India. But that was a big central place for it at the time. And they'd recently they bought some land at the time, which they were they were going to build a vihara. And there's now a very big, beautiful centre there now. But at that stage, it was just land, <coughs> and it was a, a shanty, a shanty town on the outskirts of quite a big city, not that far from Mumbai or Bombay. Um, and there was a, a doctor out there, uh, English doctor, uh, who was um, within the order of Virabhadra, and a nurse called Padmashuri. Uh, and I went out there as a medical student, um, and that was an interesting experience and a kind of rude awakening to what India was like. Um, I also got involved in other retreats, a sort of winter retreats in Pabaloka, and I went to Vajraloka. Um, and at this point in time, I had thought that my previous life, unsatisfactory as it was, I decided that I was going to dispense with that. And so I gave up all those, uh, the, the drugs, alcohol and everything. I had probably, at that stage, been in a set of relationships of serial monogamy. And I was probably identifying myself, as I think a lot of us do, where you sort of say, I feel a bit empty inside, what can fulfil it? And it would be somebody, a partner, somehow that sort of missing thing. Uh, and I'd obviously reached a point, or at least I hope I had in my maturity, where I thought, this is not working. Um, and so, for the first time, since I'd been a, a young teenager, I'd made a decision that says, I'm not going to be looking for a partner at all. I'm going to sort of stop all that process, which you can do as a kind of a teenager and in your early 20s. Uh, and I decided I was going to meditate, go on retreat, and I did all of that. So I went to a retreat centre in North Wales called Vajraloka, which uh, many of you may know or certainly will have heard about. Um, and I thought, great, everything's sorted. I know where I'm going. I'm going to be on retreat. It was a, I'd done some retreats already, so I was used to it. I'd had some quite good experience in meditation. And there I was, in Vajraloka, in North Wales, absolutely beautiful area, fantastic conditions for meditation, except for the sheep. The sheep are very noisy. 
That's also good for meditation as well, working with the noise of sheep. Um, but anyway, it was very, very good conditions and lovely people. Uh, and I was there sitting on my cushion and it was pretty hardcore, I remember it. You know, it used to be like triple sit, breakfast, double sit. Um, I think it's a bit easier now, unless you deliberately sort of go on a, an intense meditation retreat. But I just kind of remember thinking it was you get quite sore legs and bum. Um, anyway, so I was sitting there uh, hoping to have good meditations and I sort of had a taste of it. Uh, in, and I was flooded with um, one image after another of all these previous girlfriends. <laughs> and it was a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> and what it was, it was basically about this process of being turned down and being rejected. Um, and it kept on cropping up and it would kind of be what almost like a bit of video footage, sort of this flashback. So I'd be sitting there doing the mindfulness or the meta uh, and then this image would crop up and it would be this image of rejection. Um, and I, you have the opportunity to talk to people on retreat, you know, about yours. And I sort of say, this was happening. And they just sort of said, well, just sort of treat it as a hindrance um, and handle it accordingly. And there's sort of various uh, ways of handling hindrances, as I'm sure you know. So this happened repeatedly. Um, and it got me down a lot. Um, uh, and I remember that sort of someone had said at that time, if you have a hindrance and you can't do anything else with it, then go for refuge with that hindrance. So in other words, you stop trying to sort it, but you just say that the hindrance is there and you go for refuge. You, If you like, you just say, well, this is me, this is how I am. And so I remember in this process of this rather, felt like it quite a difficult time, going for refuge uh, with this problem. And interestingly, it just vanished. Um, and I then remember sitting and sitting very well um, and being quite concentrated um, and in the evening, after I would sometimes sit on after the end of the puja and sit on afterwards, I'd come out and everyone had gone to bed. Um, and I'll tell you this now, that my childhood actually wasn't a very happy childhood. Um, I hit a bad point when I was about, how old was I, nine or ten, ten years old. Um, my mother was away from home and there were lots of problems. And I had quite a lot of suicidal ideation. Not, I never actually acted upon it. And I think it's probably not that uncommon for children, sometimes older, sometimes young teenage, to go through this. And you just think life is so awful. Um, and it's interesting how that kind of can leave a mark. But anyway, so I'd had this experience in um, Vajraloka. And I was sitting outside and I had a cup of hot cocoa. I only ever drink cocoa or hot chocolate when I'm on retreat. I only have it once in the evening, at the end of the evening. I'm a bit of a night owl. I don't need that much sleep. Everyone goes off to sleep at 10 o'clock. I think, what am I going to do for the next two hours? So there I am with my cocoa, sitting outside in Vajraloka, um, and on a step, and it was a sort of fairly balmy evening, I think it must have been in the summer, and there were just these bats flying around. Um, and I mean, I can't really express it other than to tell you, but I just remember having this feeling that all things change and that whatever experience you have and whatever script you write for yourself, it's not necessarily true. Or even if it were true at the time, things can change. And with, if you like, that knowledge of impermanence, which is, I guess, what it was, 
I just remember thinking that I could never, ever have any thoughts of suicidal thoughts ever again. Just, uh, and it just struck me as a kind of sort of quite a, a beautiful experience. I mean, it's sort of, yes. Anyway, so that's the Welsh bats. That's the Welsh <laughs> bats. So you've had one of the three. <laughs> so, um, where next? Um, I qualified as a doctor in 85. I became a Mitra in the same year. Um, I carried on going on retreat to Pamaloka. Um, and whilst away on retreat, I was faced with more demons. This was the demons of ritual and puja. <laughs> I don't like, I do like ritual and puja now, but I didn't like ritual and puja then. Um, I really liked the meditation, and I really liked the ethics, and I liked the, the philosophy of Buddhism. But I did find the devotion and the ritual really quite difficult. And I would be away on retreat, enjoying it on one level deeply, and on another level, wanting to run a mile. Um, and I can remember sitting in a puja in Pamaloka, uh, thinking, what am I doing here? This is really, really nuts. Um, and wanting to go, but not going, kind of sticking with it. Um, and that particular puja, and also the introduction, was introduction of um, one of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, uh, Vajrasattva. Um, and Vajrasattva, it was interesting what my memory of it was back in the early in the mid-80s, was described as a youthful figure and also being described as the Buddha behind the Buddha. And I really liked that somehow because I knew that there was a Buddha, but I didn't want it, and this is me and I'm sure you're all very different, I didn't want it to be a historical Buddha somehow, which was born in time, and something happened, and that was, somehow, to me, that was too religious. I wanted it somehow to be the Buddha behind the Buddha, something a bit more ineffable. Um, I mean, I've sort of, I've been brought up as a scientist, and it was just my way of somehow wanting something spiritual, but being able to encapsulate it for me to be able to handle. And what was interesting was, is that Vajrasattva, who was described as this sort of 16-year-old youth, um, somehow, um, not in a mean way at all, but was mocking me. Um, he, if he is a he, saw me as I was and also kind of knew that the limits of my understanding and my perception were very limited. And he wasn't kind of mocking me at all in and out, but he kind of, he had my number. He kind of knew who he was. He knew my limitations. And yet he was also very caring very odd when I say I don't believe in ritual or devotion, but I'm sort of <laughs> describing this from very early on. But I had this quite strong sense of Vajrasattva in that way. Um, and I really had such a strong affinity with Vajrasattva ever since. And it's sort of, it's been like a, a very good marriage really, because as the relationship has gone on, I've sort of found out more and more about Vajrasattva, which I really like. Uh, I'm gonna, that's, that comes on a bit further on. So anyway, so there's this image of Vajrasattva, and I sort of, I just, I kind of, again, if you like, I almost go for refuge with my irritation of ritual and puja, but I carry on. Um, I learned a bit more about Vajrasattva. I learned that Vajrasattva was associated with um, purification, uh, which I, I've really come to see that as being very important. I don't think I did then, but I knew it was associated with that. Confession which I reacted against, brought up Jewish, not Catholic, but again, this you know, what is this confession thing? Um, 
but again, I sort of I come to uh, to appreciate that a lot, um, and also death. Um, and I've had two deaths in my own family: sister and my mother, uh, from quite quite young. Um, and also working in hospital, and I worked in Africa for a couple of years in Zimbabwe, and I sort of saw the AIDS crisis uh, when I was out there. And sometimes when I would do a morning round uh, in Harare, Zimbabwe, just during the round alone, five people would die, uh, and you'd arrive at the bedside and say they're already dead. Um, I sort of remember um, at that stage I was um, sort of a mitra and. Uh, um, sort of quite um, involved in the Dharma, and I would recite, I'd do a Vajrasattva mantra in my head on the ward round, just, you know, somehow you can do it, just um, um, seemed right. So, um, 1988, I'd been a junior doctor for two to three years, I had taken this exam called Membership of the Royal College of Physicians. MRCP, um, and I'd failed it. And the last exam I'd failed was when I was 11 years old, <laughs> uh, and it was a hell of a shock. Um, it's a professional exam, and they actually they fail. You know, in those days, only about 20% of those who took it passed. So it wasn't that unusual to fail it. But nevertheless, I kind of saw myself as hardworking and studious. So I'd failed it, and then four months later, I immediately went in for the retake. Um, and I went in, I did the exam, everything was awful in the exam. Um, I just thought, oh no, I failed it again. Uh, and I had this gap between jobs. They had these senior house officer posts, they're like six month posts where you move. And it just so happened there was um, a two month, two and a bit month gap. And friends had been to um, Everest area, the Solukumbu Valley in um, Nepal. And they described, just going by themselves, they described going there, staying in these tea huts on the way, um, and walking up towards Everest Base Camp, and this beautiful peak called Kalapatar, which overlooks Everest. Um, so I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. So I went there to drown my sorrows, uh, feeling that I'd just failed this exam again. By myself, um, my partner and I had agreed to break up. Uh, we'd been together, actually, since I first got involved in Long Ashton Days. Um, called Cathy. She's actually my wife now, so we didn't break up. Um, and the reason why we were going to break up was because I decided I didn't want children. Um, and Cathy wanted children. It was just a, it was an agreed thing. Um, we weren't getting on particularly, we weren't getting on badly. Um, anyway, so I was out there walking up in the Himalayas, uh, passing all these tremendous gompas, these wonderful Tibetan monasteries from the Nyingma Pa tradition, and these Mani walls. Uh, and walking by myself and sometimes with people I met, met on the way, uh, climbing higher and higher and higher up towards um, Everest Base Camp. Um, and um, as I sort of went up, for whatever reason, I changed my mind uh, and I decided that I didn't want to be a dad after all. So I think I sent a letter saying that I've changed my mind and I'd like to be a dad. I don't know why I changed I just did. Um, so that was interesting. And I went up to Everest Base Camp, stayed there, and stayed in the area for a while, uh, and other sort of area, other areas looking over Everest, then came back down again. Um, went, stayed, had sort of final three, four days in Kathmandu, and went on a spending spree, as one does. It's kind of, you know, if you're a Buddhist, there's so many fantastic 
tankers and roopers and I was getting presents for people and things um, and um, I got very low on money and whilst I was sort of going around the back streets of the Tamil area in Kathmandu I saw Vajrasattva and this Vajrasattva stood out like no other rupa I'd seen before um, it was um, it was a sort of bronze um, alloy of some kind, quite a dark <coughs> alloy. It was completely different from the other images of Vajrasattva which I'd seen, which in that area are often painted, and you've probably seen them yourself. But some of them are just kind of just one, so it was one colour only. And it was beautifully crafted by somebody who I felt was an artist, and somehow it captured the spirit of Vajrasattva with sort of a slightly sort of curved body at an incline, um, a very beautiful face, um, and um, held in the right hand the Vajra, uh, of which my name, I'm uh, Vajra, means he who wields the Vajra, he who wields truth, or he who, he who wields the diamond thunderbolt. He had a, and this Vajra you could take off. It was, wasn't kind of, uh, so it was a movable Vajra, and there was a movable bell as well, um, which also was interesting. Um, and this uh, Rupa was about quite expensive for me. I was a junior doctor at the time. Um, I can't remember what it was, but it was a, a relatively lot of money for me. Um, and I had that amount of money and no more. And I knew that I needed money to live for the next day, probably the next two days. Uh, and so I went to him and I, I bid him on it, as you all did. I bid him on it. And in this back, in the shop in the back, um, Normally, they, they're, up, they're up for it, they came, but he would not shift on it. He gave me the price, and he said, no, that's the price. Um, and um, I said, look, I'm being completely straight with you. Uh, I would really, really like this Rupa, but this is all the money which I have. Um, and he said, I'm sorry, that's the price. So I went away, and I came back the following day, saying, I'm still interested. And he said, that's fine, but that's... And he wouldn't change on the price. And I just thought, well, what do I do? Um, so what I did was is I bought the Rupa. I bought the Rupa, left me with no money to speak of, um, and I was very pleased I'd bought the Rupa, packed my bag, went off to the airport, arrived in the airport with my Rupa and everything. Airport tax. I hadn't thought. Uh, I didn't have it at all. Um, and the, um, the kind of the immigration people sort of said, you can't go. Um, and the aeroplanes out of Kathmandu, they weren't that frequent, maybe there was one a day. And I had work to go back for, I paid for the ticket, I was at risk of losing the ticket. Um, and um, I got cross, which achieved nothing at all. Um, and I um, found somebody in the queue, uh, it was the last, he, he was, a, um, he was a, a white guy from England, from, um, from the Lake District, who sold outward bound type clothes. And I sort of said to him, I said, look, all this has happened. And he looked at me as if I was kind of, you know, a standard beggar using a ruse. Um, and so I said to him, well, look, I'll give you my credit card if you can sort of lend me. And it was about £7, the airport tax. Uh, and he eventually agreed. And I got on the plane, came back, and I thought, phew, I'm fine. So uh, went through Bangladesh on the way back, then arrived back in Heathrow. And in Heathrow, I never stopped by immigration, by customs. 
But for whatever reason, I was looking smelly and hairy and by myself, single male, having come through, Bangl through Dhaka, Bangladesh. So they stopped me. Um, and they unpacked everything. Uh, they opened my wash bag, they took the soap out, they broke the soap in half. Um, they wanted to know what I was doing, where I'd been, etc. Um, and they came across um, my Vajrasattva Rupa. Um, and uh, they said, I'm sorry, sir, we need to take this off. So they took the Vajrasattva Rupa away, and they came back and they, they said, our x-rays won't penetrate it. Uh, <laughs> um, our x-rays won't penetrate it, I'm afraid we need to drill holes in it. Um, so, uh, what could I do, what could I say? I don't know, I kind of, sort of, I was quite chilled about it, for whatever reason. So he drilled holes in the base, not actually, in the base, um, looking for heroin. Um, and for those of you who know anything about Vajrasattva, what Vajrasattva does, and this was given to me as a sadhana when I was ordained, what Vajrasattva does at a certain point, um, associated with the mantra, um, is issuing from him, issuing from his heart, um, uh, false nectar, nectar of purification, which is wide. Okay? So I kind of had this, my, my own rupa, with holes in the bottom, kind of imagining heroin pouring out through these holes. But of course there was no heroin there at all. And actually, he, interestingly, he was quite apologetic afterwards. Because I think I said, you know, I'm a Buddhist. Um, and he said, look, I, I've got to do this. Um, so anyway, uh, he let me through. And I came back with my, uh, my Vajrasattva Rupa, which is sort of still on my shrine. Um, anyway, that's my second point. The Vajrasattva drug mule. <laughs> So, um, where next? Well, I need to fast forward in time quite a lot. So, I had, I part, oh, I forgot to tell you, when I was in Kathmandu, I went to the post office, got a letter, an aerogram, and on it, it said my name, MRCP, and I'd actually passed. <laughs> <laughs> so I passed the exam, and then I went on, and I trained in various things, I did infection, tropical medicine, HIV medicine for a while. Uh, I worked in Africa for a while. Um, and with my family, I was offered another job in tropical medicine, which was my love at the time, particularly TB. But uh, we had three children at that stage. Um, and my wife very sensibly said, actually, this is, it was the Gambia, it was West Africa, this is not the place to bring out children. So I had to rethink. And I rethought and I retrained in respiratory medicine, in chest medicine. Um, which I then trained in London. Um, before I moved, around about that, that was interesting actually, around about that time, what had happened was, is I desperately wanted to carry on in tuberculosis, because I'd done quite a lot of research in Africa, and then I'd done um, three years doing a PhD on TB vaccine design, um, and I loved it, and I sort of, I, you know, was making my sort of way as an academic um, and I was offered this five-year fellowship in West Africa and Kathy said actually this is not good for the family and I kind of looked at everything going on in my life and this was the point having been a Mitra in what was then the FWO for many years I was sort of saying well what why do we make the decisions which we do um, and it was interesting that at this point for whatever reason I was beginning to let go of ambition. Um, 
And I saw quite a lot of my friends, and I've since seen them, you sort of carried on on that, that pathway, is that one can be drawn into, um, almost kind of enticed into this kind of world where you feel good about yourself because you're such and such a person, because you hold such and such a position. Um, and it's interesting, I would say that my contact with the Dharma and understanding about impermanence, insubstantiality and unsatisfactoriness helped me at that point to actually say, actually, no, I'm going to leave that behind and I'm actually going to be a dad and I'm going to be a jobbing doctor, which is what I do now. Most of my work is, it's very basic, sort of dealing with emphysema, asthma, lung cancer. Um, so, um, at that stage, I asked to join the order. It was 1999, uh, I was in the North London Centre, and somebody who'd just been ordained said to me, have you thought about asking? And I kind of said, well, to be honest, I don't really think that I'm up to it. I don't really think I'm worthy enough. And he said, well, what is it you think that's missing? And of course, I came up with all this stuff. And then he said, well, I would say that the actual process of asking um, will help you resolve some of those issues. So I asked. And it was very moving. I said, uh, just, I've just come back from Buddhafield, and I said in Buddhafield, I said, um, uh, it was like the Dharmic equivalent of a proposal of marriage. <laughs> um, because it's kind of, you're not actually yet married, but it's so much about the intention, and it's kind of what could hold a lot of people back. Um, so it was kind of very, well, very moving for me, and kind of opened lots of stuff up when I did ask. And I actually wasn't ordained for another seven years, another seven, eight years. Um, but anyway, I came here, I came to Bristol, back to Bristol where I first got involved. I was working then in the hospital in Bath, in the Royal United Hospital, um, and I joined a Going for Refuge group. Um, and later on, we ended up calling ourselves the Dharma Bums, um, which is sort of it's slightly ironic with the Dharma Bums. They were kind of 1950s poet beatniks who are kind of free and independent and actually if you if you know us at all we're not like that at all we're kind of all middle-aged or older we're kind of lots of ties and jobs and stuff but nevertheless what we were what we were is that we were old i was the youngest we were old so we were bums in that sense we were bums in that um and so then um we went through together the ordination process and we said to the ordination team in uh, norfolk in padmaloka um, we said we would love to be ordained together. And what we would like is that when you think the last of five of us are ready, please would you uh, then ordain us as a group. Um, and they were up for this. They thought it was a good idea. So time went by, not that long actually, maybe another 18 months, when they decided whoever was the last to be ready, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, they then said fine, and they, um, we organised two weeks um, in Spain, um, in the main men's ordination retreat centre, where normally men would go for the long retreat. But because we were married, with kids, with dependents, and we had jobs and we couldn't get time off jobs, they said they would do us as a job lot in two weeks. <laughs> okay. Um, so, I, it wasn't that, there was eight years leading up to it, so it wasn't. But anyway, so we went out there with our preceptors, um, and... Um, this is my last glimpse, my last sort of glimpse at, or shadow of a glimpse of perfect vision. Um, so 
I've always loved meditation, and meditation is, I think, what drives me, and I sort of, I, I feel very comfortable meditating, and I have had, I think, quite strong meditation experience, certainly in the early years, kind of less so now, um, but I sort of have memories of that. Um, and even now, I can still, if I sit for long enough, I can still get quite concentrated. So there I was, again, in ideal conditions. It wasn't girls this time. Um, again, in ideal conditions, in this beautiful, beautiful environment, um, sitting. And the sitting was going quite well. I was well concentrated. We were learning different meditations. I was doing the six element practice, which I kind of knew of but had never really done. Uh, we had quite a long period of silence in the middle. Um, and things were fine, but it was interesting that somehow there was some block, or somehow it wasn't quite working. It was, it, it was okay, but there was something missing. Um, and I would do this thing where I could sort of say, well, let's just sit on and see what happens. So again, in the evening, I would sit on. And I might have done this for more than one night. Um, and so I sat on, and... I had my, my glimpse, my shadow of a glimpse, and actually it was very simple, um, and it doesn't sound very profound, but it felt terribly profound to me at the time. And it was this, is that there is no point whatsoever in all this meditation unless it's to help people. Um, and it was kind of sort of as if the floodgates opened, and I just sort of thought that what it, maybe wherever I was or whatever I was doing, that my sole purpose for all of this, for all my Dharma activity and Dharma practice, was really about being in the world and about my interaction with people. Um, and I don't, I, mean, I don't mean it in a kind of a, in an altruistic sense, it just kind of felt that it was about interacting with the world somehow and with beings. Um, I'm going to finish off with a poem. It's on my iPhone. <laughs> I, did have a, I did have a different poem, but I really wanted to read this poem. Um, I heard this poem, actually, just in Buddhafield. Um, Jaya Raja did it at the end of his talk, and I loved it so much that I just thought that it was, um, it was very appropriate. Whoops, Daisy, it's not in there. What am I doing here? It's just been emailed to me by Satchalila. Okay. So this is a poem from Manjusra, and it's called Holy. Like many on the spiritual path, I can get hung up on highfalutin metaphysics. But the real test is when I'm sitting alone in my car at the traffic lights. Where am I when the signal does its star turn from red to green via yellow. These are, of course, all symbolic colours, especially to a Buddhist. The red of infinite bliss, green of lightning-quick compassion, yellow of inner riches. But as the engine misses a beat, is this what I dwell upon? Or is my mind unseen racing forward to the supermarket or cursing the pedestrians for being so pedestrian or thinking about nothing at all 
except its own gloom. Yet, Blake said, everything that lives is holy. And that includes myself, serving time at the traffic lights, lost, out of view of those who think better of me than I do. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 